all engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm James Titko. Coming up this week, the world crosses the threshold of one terawatt of energy produced from solar means. We'll ask what the significance is, the parting gift left behind by birds meeting an unfortunate demise and looking for faraway planets that have magnetic fields just like Earth. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. We've reached a landmark in renewable energy this week. The amount of power generated by solar power has eclipsed one terawatt. That's one trillion watts of energy. Solar PV, or photovoltaics, is a technology used in solar panels. These are fairly common sight nowadays on roofs or in fields, but the first photovoltaic systems were used in specialised electricity grids in the 1990s. In the past 30 years, their prevalence has skyrocketed, thanks to improvements in the equipment itself and in their manufacture. The global output of solar power was predicted to reach 880 gigawatts by 2024, but we've smashed that target, reaching one terawatt already. But how does that stack up against our current power usage demands and what does the future hold for solar power? Chris Smith spoke to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory's Nancy Hagel. Our global average power consumption, so this is all the energy used in the world, averaged over time is now 19 terawatts. That doesn't mean we use energy at the same rate, of course, or anything like that, but we average totally 19 terawatts. So one way to think about this is that the PV installed now is of the same order of magnitude. We're talking kind of about the same units of our needs. And so what that means is that we can now really envision a path to 2050 where PV could become a majority supplier of total energy for the world. That's about... 5% ish, isn't it, of the energy that we're using? And it's taken decades to get our first terawatt, our first 5%. How long is it going to take us to get our second? There are different estimates, but some people will say that will happen now only within another couple years. Last year, there was almost 300 gigawatts, so a third of a terawatt installed. This industry has been growing exponentially. And part of the message from this international group is that If that growth continues over the next 10 years, and these next 10 years are critical, then we really do have a chance to be on a path to the levels of clean energy, clean electricity generation that we'll need. But critically, where the people are using the power, is there enough sunshine to make a meaningful dent in this? Or have we got a sort of disconnect between where the sun shines and where the sink for the power is? The statistic is that about 80% of the world's population lives within the Sun Belt. So their levels of insulation are quite high. Now, of course, it's a variable resource, right? The Earth rotates, day turns into night for us. The sun always shines, right? People say the sun doesn't shine at night. I always remind them, of course, it does. And so it's certainly a variable source. We're going to need to work with storage Different parts of the country, depending on their location, will will have different fractions of, of photovoltaics. 
But in terms of the overall population globally, yes, the sun really is where a lot of the people are. When we do the life cycle analysis, because this is one criticism that's often levelled at certain green initiatives, which is that on the one hand, something looks particularly attractive. It will save X number of thousand tonnes of carbon dioxide every year if we do this, neglecting the build in the first place, the purchase of the materials and shipping them halfway around the world and then installing them and then decommissioning them later. Does this actually stack up in those sorts of metrics? You're absolutely right that we have to take this broad view, and that's one thing that we talk about extensively in in the paper. Over time, the PV industry has been reducing both the embedded energy and the embedded carbon in PV panels. It turns out that one of the biggest drivers there is the nature of the electric grid where the PV is being produced. And so industry is certainly paying increased attention to this, but the potential is there to make what is already a relatively green technology even greener as we put more PV onto these major industrial grids. So nothing is without cost, right? And these things are being uh, certainly assessed and studied in great detail. And, And one of the other things we call for is increased research and development focusing on the the future of photovoltaics. This will be true of wind and storage technologies as well in, in a circular economy that is one that minimizes raw material extraction, waste at the end, and reduces the Im- embedded carbon. Flipping things around to the end of life of this, one concern is what we do with all of these panels when they reach their end of life. Has someone actually considered the recycling problem? Is there a plan being put in place both locally, nationally, but internationally for that? Because arguably this is going to become a a big issue. These panels are big and they're very heavy. Yes, this is an issue that's receiving a lot of attention uh, in the media and in the PV R&D community and industry as well. It is being studied. I think the way to think about this is really in the context of the much broader question of electronic waste overall, which is quite massive today in and of itself. Now, PV panels have a lifetime of 25 to 30 years. And so these ones being installed today and this ramp up that we absolutely have to see within the next 10 years to reach our our 2050 goals will be in the field for multiple decades. And so the good news about this is that we really do have time to develop these strategies. The design will probably evolve to be more eco-friendly. There's a certain tension between wanting a very durable product that'll last outdoors for 30 years and something that's easy to to reuse, but we think we can address that tension. But it, it shouldn't be an excuse not to move forward at this point because we do need to mitigate CO2 emission. And at every panel that we install today means the next 20 to 30 years of not having to remove that CO2 downstream. Nancy Hagel. Anyone that's ever returned to their car and found that a bird has done its business on their windshield has no doubt felt a little bit miffed. Although some say bird poo is a sign of good luck and prosperity to come, it's probably not those who've had this happen to them. But whilst many bemoan this bit of bad luck, there are those using it as a way of looking at the inner workings of migratory birds. Lucky them. 
The team of tireless volunteers at the Fields Museum in Chicago have been collecting dead birds that have flown into buildings so that they may get a better understanding of the gut microbiome of said birds. Will Tingle has been talking to one of those involved, Heather Skeen. So it is an interesting way to study an animal. The poop is disgusting and fascinating at the same time. Most host-associated microbiome studies focus on bacteria, but not all of them. And the poop or the intestinal bacteria is kind of a snapshot of the rest of the gastrointestinal tract, the rest of the gut tract. And so it is a very easy way to get a snapshot of what host-associated microbes look like. So these are colloquially called gut microbiomes. And do these sort of indicate perhaps what level of health the bird is in? What does it show us about the bird, essentially? The studies on the gut microbiome have really increased over the past 10 to 15 years, and we are learning more and more every day about how incredibly important the gut microbiome is to the host health. Gut microbiomes can provide defense against pathogens. They can affect behaviors and cognition. They help with food digestion. And in general, a healthy gut is essential to the survival and fitness of the host. Tying microbiomes to migratory birds then, given that migratory birds travel through so many different environments, is that playing a part on how their microbiome shifts going from region to region? Yeah, it definitely plays a part in how the microbiome changes throughout. So the annual cycle refers to the migratory cycle. Birds generally migrate. They're born on their breeding grounds. They migrate north or south, depending on where you are in the world. They migrate to their overwintering grounds. And then after winter has passed, they migrate back to the breeding grounds. So it's kind of like a four-part cycle. And there have only been a couple of studies on the microbiota of migratory birds, but all of those have shown, or the majority of them have shown, that there are significant shifts in the composition of the gut microbiome, depending on where the bird is within its migratory cycle. That seems extraordinary then that it can adapt four times a year, as you say, its entire microbiome to the diet that it has to take in at any given point. Yeah. And it's not, it is like those four main spots, but it's also all the places that they stop throughout their migration. They'll migrate a couple hundred miles a night and be in an entirely new environment. And so each day or every couple of days, these birds are adjusting to a new environment with new water sources and new food sources and new other birds that are around them that can also impact their microbiome. So it is a huge question on how these birds are so good at moving throughout these highly variable environments while maintaining a stable gut microbiome or a working gut microbiome. Yeah, I mean, would you like to speculate as to how you think they might do it? My whole career is going to be based on answering that question. So this is very much speculation. So how do these birds adapt to all these different environments and have a highly variable microbiome depending on what environment they're in? while still having some sort of connection to the microbiome. Our guess, the working hypothesis right now, is that they have a very, very small subset of bacteria that stay within their gut, their resident gut microbiome, while the majority of bacteria in there are these transient ones that come in with a new environment and immediately go out. And so when we see a snapshot with you know one poop sample, we likely are seeing a huge influence of environmental microbes that likely play no role to the host. They don't help the host. They don't harm the host. They're just there until they pass through. And so determining these resident core gut microbes is turning out to be very difficult. 
But once we figure out what those are, we can start asking and answering questions on how birds are able to exist in all of these different environments. How are they able to fly a couple hundred miles over a very, very short period of time and not die of exhaustion? So it's a wide open field with far more questions than answers, but we are working to build the foundation to be able to answer these questions. As with every conversation about survival strategies and ecology, comes the question of climate change. Because given if a migratory bird has to pass through, say, a thousand miles, even if one biome on the way is being affected particularly by climate change, do you think that could have a distinct effect on their ability to survive and maybe the inner workings of their gut microbiome at the same time? Yes, definitely. The climate change will affect birds in a variety of ways. One of the ways is by changing the composition of the environmental microbes, the environmental microbiome that they exist in. That being said, there's also an idea that resident gut microbes may help the birds adapt to the changing environments. Bacteria can evolve more quickly than the vertebrate birds. Therefore, it is not unreasonable to think that an evolving gut microbiome of these resident gut bacteria will help the bird be able to more quickly adapt to climate change. Heather scheme on the faecal farewell left behind by birds bumping into buildings in the way of their migratory path. That paper can be found in the journal Molecular Ecology. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, James Titko. Still to come, we'll be asking whether there are planets out there with magnetic fields just like Earth. But first, one of the great unsolved mysteries in the animal and plant kingdoms is how some organisms are sensitive to magnetic fields. A surprising number of animals seem to show some kind of sensitivity to magnetic alignment, albeit probably not consciously. For example, the majority of dogs will poo on a north-south axis. Naked mole rats live their entire lives in underground tunnels but rarely get lost and sea turtles migrate for thousands of miles every year and find the same beach they hatch from without fail. But whilst these examples are remarkable, the mechanisms behind magnetoreception are still elusive. But now a new theory has emerged, and it might imply sensitivity to magnetic fields is more common than we realise. Will Tingle has been finding out more. The ability of many organisms to detect the Earth's magnetic field has been a mystery since its discovery. Previous theories thought that it could be to do with the presence of magnetite, a magnetic mineral, in some organisms' brains. But a new study has a different idea, as the University of Manchester's Adam Bradlaugh explains. There's two sort of prevailing theories in magnetoreception, one of which is based on iron particles, and this is maybe the more obvious one because we all know that a magnet will stick to iron and such. But this has struggled to gain traction as scientists have really failed to sort of identify any of the tissues or any cells containing these particles. The other theory is less obvious because this is rooted in a strange, spooky quantum effect on electrons. And the biological machine at the heart of this is something called cryptochrome. Cryptochrome is a protein found in animals' eyes, including our own. 
It's sensitive to blue light and, since blue light boosts brain activity and mood, plays a large part in our circadian rhythm. But it might also be responsible for some organisms' magnetoreception. The process is quite complex, but here we go. When a blue photon from blue light enters cryptochrome, it causes electrons to spin in a certain direction. This effect, twinned with cryptochrome's exposure to the Earth's magnetic field, aligns the electrons in such a way that cryptochrome releases a neurotransmitter up the optic nerve and to the brain, and it allows animals such as migrating birds to see magnetic fields. This is rather complex, granted, and certainly a very strange theory, but the discoveries get weirder still. There are, however, some strange results with cryptochrome and some contradictory results. And this involves that if you get rid of the majority of cryptochrome, the parts of which are believed to be essential for magnetoreception, you can still have a sensitivity to magnetic fields through it. This is very unexpected because it's sort of like taking the engine out of a car and the car will still start. So it doesn't mean that the cryptochrome magnetic sense theory is wrong. It suggests more that there's an extra dimension to it that we're not really appreciating. And so in steps flavin adenine dinucleotide, better known to its friends as FAD. It's a molecule that supports metabolism in cells. It's found in cryptochrome. It helps with the taking in of the blue photon at the beginning. Previously thought to be a bit player in this process of magnetoreception, it might actually have a far more significant role than we realise. What our work has shown, actually, is, and it turns sort of this idea a bit on its head, is that FAD alone is capable of some of the same chemistry, this exotic chemistry that cryptochrome is believed to do, and can sense magnetic fields on their own. And this is uh, quite interesting because FAD, unlike cryptochrome, is a very, very common molecule found in pretty much all cells and really throughout the animal kingdom and throughout life as a whole. It is probably not the primary way in which animals which are navigating or using the Earth's magnetic field, sensing it in that way, are doing this. They need cryptochrome there to probably amplify this effect. But the fact that FAD can do this alone does suggest that cells, their bare bones of cells, have this essential element which can sort of impart a slight sensitivity to them. So FAD could well be sensitive to magnetic fields as well. But that raises another point, because cryptochrome is typically found in just the eyes. But FAD is pretty much everywhere in the body. Because FAD is found in all of these different cell types across the animal kingdom, where cryptochrome isn't, it suggests not just a greater sensitivity between species, but a sensitivity really of magnetic fields spread throughout all types of cells. And this really sort of broadens our viewpoint on magnetic fields and really challenges us to identify different ways in which magnetic fields might be interacting with the cells. Does this mean then that there are far more species out there than we realise that are sensitive to the magnetic field, including us? Humans, we can't navigate using the Earth's magnetic field, but there are studies which show that if you expose a human whilst you're recording their activity in their brain to a change in the magnetic field, their alpha waves, so these waves of activity in the brain, actually change. Now, we don't feel this because it's a subconscious sense. But what it suggests, really, is that this is a much more widespread uh, sense. Some animals are much more conscious and use it, but it's probably much more widely spread throughout the animal kingdom. Adam Bradlaw, and that paper was published in the journal Nature. Concrete, as integral to the modern world as electricity or the internet. 
But did you know that making it causes 8% of global CO2 emissions? Once concrete sets and cures after 28 days, it does capture CO2 from the air for up to 100 years. But as well as taking ages, this process has the additional downside of degrading the strength of the material. Admir Masic and his team at MIT have come up with a way to make more CO2 lock itself into the concrete earlier in its lifetime, reducing emissions and avoiding the degradation from carbon capture. It all has to do with the cement hydration process, as Chris Smith heard. You can uh, maybe, you know, create the atmosphere of CO2 around your uh, hydrating uh, cement block. You can uh, pump CO2 into your track that is mixing your fresh concrete or do it as we did it in this paper where we added sodium bicarbonate that allows you to, once you add water into this additive and the water into the mix, uh, saturates the solution, hydrating solution with the carbonates and eventually react with our hydrating cement. The problem is, obviously, if you're using sodium bicarbonate, you've got to make that in the first place, haven't you? Any sort of carbonates that are soluble in the hydrating solution eventually will work. And we, we are trying different types of these. So, so there is a lot of work to do, definitely, in that space. Nevertheless, what we show in, in our work here is that we can push significant amounts of CO2 into the structure of cement, which was kind of unknown. So we were talking about 15% of entire emissions associated with the cement production that can be remineralized in the very early stages, making a, a exactly a cement and concrete the carbon sink. That flips the equation around completely, doesn't it? Because if making it has a carbon footprint of about 8% of all emissions, and you're saying you make it and we can actually remove 15% of the emissions. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds extremely attractive. Is the concrete you make any good? Have you structurally tested this stuff to make sure that what we end up with is something which is going to hold up a building? We did test the mechanical performance after carbonation using uh, carbonates in different concentrations. We set this uh, 15% limit exactly based on our mechanical testing results. We statistically show that that we do not compromise mechanical performance after addition up to 15% of bicarbonates. Very promising. That was Admir Masic from MIT. Up into space now and looking for Earth Mark II. The pace of discovery of rocky planets out in space like this one, or exoplanets as they're known, has really accelerated over the past 10-15 years. Looking for signs of life, or that another planet might be habitable, astronomers have a list of criteria when deciding which planets to investigate further. Whether another planet might have water, for example, seeing as it was so essential for life here on Earth, it might hold the key to finding it elsewhere. Another such criteria is whether another planet could have a magnetic field, and recently, scientists in the United States think they might have happened upon a potential candidate. The Earth's magnetic field is crucial for navigators looking to get around with a compass, for transporting electricity around the national grid, and for sending communications across the world. But, and most fundamentally perhaps, it also stops harmful particles spewed from the sun from damaging our atmosphere and leaving us vulnerable to harmful radiation. 
We really don't know how common magnetic fields are yet on planets, because so far we only have our solar system for evidence. That's Jackie Villardson, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Bucknell University, who's been working on a new technique for finding faraway planets which might have a magnetic field of their own. Magnetic fields are invisible, which makes them really hard to see, especially on planets outside our solar system. We know that of the four rocky planets in our solar system, only Earth has a global magnetic field around it that has a similar strength to Earth's. We use radio wavelength telescopes, such as the Very Large Array in New Mexico, which is what we use to observe the star YZ SETI, orbited by its planet YZ SETI b. Radio telescopes, like the one Jackie uses, detect radio waves from space. Just as optical telescopes observe radiation from the visible light wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum, radio telescopes can pick up radio signals which have much longer wavelengths. And by combining together the radio waves picked up by all of the 27 satellite dishes, you can create a photograph of the sky using radio waves, just like you'd look up with your eyes and see the sky, it's dark, it's full of stars. You can take a photo with radio waves and see, okay, the sky is mostly dark, but there's actually a bunch of galaxies making radio waves. Most stars you don't see in this radio photograph, but we were photographing these stars to see, do they ever turn on and suddenly make some radio waves? Jackie's technique relies on the fact that if you've got radio waves emanating from a star, it might be an indication the nearby planet is fending off some of the radiation in the same way that Earth does from the Sun. That's what they think is happening with YZ SETI. It's actually one of the closer stars that we have, and it's actually pretty close at only 12 light years away. That's Sebastian Pineda, research scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder, who came in to help ramp up observations after Jackie had outlined its potential. The reason we were targeting this particular star is that it has this close-in planet, right? Jack and I were thinking about uh, this idea and looking for targets. We realized that this particular system with a very close-in planet is maybe amenable to actually discovering uh, this kind of signals we were looking for. It was really targeting systems where we knew that planets were close in, that they potentially could have this uh, magnetic interaction that would produce the kind of radio waves we were looking for. When we targeted this planet with a very large array, we initially watched the star for six hours a day, three days in a row. And in our photo of the sky, you mostly see only galaxies. And then on day two, the star turns on for a while and then turns back off. So it appears in the photo, then disappears. And then not there on day three again. Because the planet in question, YZ SETI b, is so close to the star, YZ SETI, it completes an orbit in just two days, meaning that repeat radio signals can be spotted from Earth in that time frame. Encouraged by what they had seen, the team looked at the star when the planet was in the same position a couple of days later as a follow-up. They wondered if the burst of radio waves would repeat. It took a lot of image processing, removing galaxies creating glare in the radio telescope picture, but... Eventually, pop, we realized that the star was there in the data. 
So we saw a second burst of radio waves from this star in our follow-up. And that burst of radio waves was when the planet was at a similar position, but not exactly the same position. The measurements we were seeing suggested that what would be consistent with the data is a planet with some uh, magnetic field. We need to understand the star a little bit better. We need additional observations to confirm the interaction that, that we're seeing. Uh, to really nail down a measurement of the field. And I think we're demonstrating the possibilities of sort of radio telescopes. And you know, the, there are actually many uh, radio facilities coming online and planned for the near future that I would actually re will be really uh, powerful for this kind of work. So I'm really excited about those possibilities. What he said about radio telescopes is great. 10 years from now, next generation very large array is going to be the best. <laughs> Many thanks to Jackie Villardson and Sebastian Pineda. That paper was published in Nature Astronomy. And that's all we have time for this week. But come back next week when we're going to be sucked towards the subject of black holes. We'll be looking at how they form, how to spot one, and whether there's such a thing as a white hole. The Naked Scientists comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm James Titko. Thanks for listening. And until next time... Goodbye.